0: Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Derek Weston. Hi, and welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. My name is Derek Weston, and today's guest is my friend, Marianne McKibben Dana. The Reverend Marianne McKibben Dana is a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in the Virginia suburbs of DC. She's author of three books, Hope, A User's Manual, God, Improv, in the Art of Living, and Sabbath in the Suburbs. In addition to her books, her writing has appeared in Time.com, The Washington Post, Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, Journal for Preachers, Coaching World, and The Christian Century, and in a monthly column for Presbyterians Today for three years. She was featured on PBS's Religion and Ethics News Weekly for her work on Sabbath and was recognized by the Presbyterian Writers Guild with the 2015-2016 David Steele Distinguished Writer Award. She's a sought-after speaker, preacher, conference leader, and writer around issues of leadership, faith formation, and congregational transformation. She currently serves as associate pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Herndon, Virginia. She's a mother of three, an imperfect knitter, and an occasional ultramarathoner. Before we get started, I'm excited to let you know that Maya and Anna's book, The Jess Kitchen, Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration, is available for pre-order where you get your books. And if you have a favorite small independent bookseller, please encourage them to carry the book. All right. Here's my conversation with Marianne. All right. We are here with Marianne McKibben-Dana. Marianne, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I have loved listening to your podcast. So it's it's strange and wonderful to be on the other side of of the equation, I guess.
0: So. <laughs> Glad to have you here. Um, so then you know that we're going to begin with the question we always begin with, and that is, what is your geography? What what are the the lands, the people, culture, food, music that have shaped you to be the person that you are?
1: Well, I live currently in Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., which is an interesting geography because it's so transient. There are mm-hmm. always people moving in and out, which in some ways can... Make it feel a little rootless, mm. and on the other side, it can be really vibrant because there's always new people to meet and and people. It's a very international area, which I, I really value. But but the my true rootedness comes from the the town of my birth and where I spent uh, much of my growing up years, which is Houston, Texas, and a fantastic food city. I think very underrated in terms of the great food cities in our country it's extremely international and it's always a little bit of a struggle when I go home and and visit family or friends and I only have a few days I have my sort of all right I've got to get the barbecue I've got to get the tex mex <laughs> and then there's kind of some free spaces you know wild cards where you know do I want to do the golf gulf shrimp, you know, or the uh, there's uh, some good Cajun stuff there. There's a huge Vietnamese population. So there's, I mean, it, so it it really is a, a smorgasbord of, of cultures and tastes there. And I, I love that. I love that about it. I grew up in a uh, kind of, I guess you would say a, a sort of traditional waspy household. <laughs> <laughs> where, you know, food was, I think, I mean, I, I, I look back so fondly at some of those strange dishes that my mom kind of threw together. That was, uh, that were very utilitarian. I think mm. kind of easy to get on the table. We had, I have three siblings. So with four of us, it was kind of just get it done. Um, a lot of sloppy Joe's, a lot of, um, something I was in the grocery store yesterday and, uh, I had forgotten that this existed, but the The jars of chipped beef.
0: Oh yeah, um, that were just like
1: that really thin, very salty kind of meat that we would have, you know, chopped up in a kind of a white gravy on toast. So chipped beef on toast was a big. We're talking uh, you and I, Derek, uh, in December. So I think a lot about Christmas and traditions, and and one of the things that I remember really fondly is that my parents would have a holiday open house on a Sunday afternoon before Christmas, and we would have hundreds of people coming through over the course of several hours they would stay for a little while and and it had all of the uh you know it had the uh the the meatballs on the cocktail toothpicks <laughs> and the you know and my mom cooked for days to get ready for this thing and it's interesting as i think about my own kind of cultural uh biography, my own kind of baggage and also things that I hold dear around this because it was like when my parents divorced, my mom just uh did away with all of the cook, like I'm not cooking anymore. It's like hmm. she had, she had, she had done it all, had, had given it the office, so to speak, and was like, I'm done. <laughs> and it's been interesting to think about how that fits into my own self-concept and my own identity as a feminist woman in the world, I think I put on a lot of that like we're out in the workforce and we are, you know, I, I came of age in the 80s. So the kind of working girl and and sort of, you know, those women in in shoulder pads kind of feminism, right? And And yet our family is very, very tied to the dinner table. I, mm. I cook most nights mainly because I work from home and my husband doesn't as much, although he, he does, um, uh, know his way w- uh, very well around a kitchen. Uh, but family dinner is really important. And, in mm. uh, we are fortunate that our three kids, uh, none of them were that into sports. And I know that encroaches so often on the family yes. dinner table, but, uh, you know, even with the piano lessons and cello lessons and and other things, uh, we really that's been a place of care and connection. We eat together at least easily five nights a week, but usually we hit all seven where we can all be around the table together. And I really value that. And and in recent years, have have really dug into cooking and baking, not as a utilitarian thing that puts sustenance into our bodies, but as a real expression of creativity. I've started to be able to improvise a little more in the kitchen, which is is new for me. I'm, I'm really good at following a recipe, but kind of being able to bring a little more to that has been a lot of fun. Uh, so those are the main, I think markers. Um, I also, I went to seminary in Atlanta, Georgia and, and picked up that wonderful kind of uh, Southern flavor of being there for, for several years. And, and those, those tastes remain with me as well. Um, mm. but Houston is really, really the heart of it. And, yeah. and I still have just such a, a love and joy for, for that city and affection for the people and the, the culture there.
0: Yeah, so it's it's interesting the the piece about about your mom and sort of the, you know I'm I'm done cooking <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and and now kind of hearing where you are. Um, so so what if anything of your childhood kitchen do you bring into your your current kitchen as you're as you're thinking about there was clearly this divide, and yet you've you've kind of found a, a new place of joy in your kitchen. Yeah.
1: That's a great question. And I, as I think about it, you know, when Robert and I got married, we were married for almost 10 years before we had kids. And so I don't really remember having a very intentional conversation about, we are going to make sure to sit around the dinner table as many nights a week as we can. Mm. It just kind of was something that we, we both knew we valued. And I will say that my own family valued that as well. And it was never stated. It was just an assumed thing that we were going to be and, you know, around the table together. And if that meant we needed to eat a little earlier because I had to get to Girl Scouts or, you know, whatever. And, and so as I think about the legacy of that and what I've absorbed, I really, it's kind of a paradox that I have, I've given myself permission to really play around in the kitchen and and try some new things. And, and yet even too much of a good thing can can feel overwhelming. And I can easily get into like a, a not a performance mindset, but like a, um, I, it needs to be something new. It needs to be something mm-hmm. out of a recipe mm-hmm. out, as opposed to out of a box. And, and so I don't ever want to get to the point where, uh, and I, I respect and honor my mom's own kind of boundary of saying I cared for so many people for so many years. I'm going to care for them in other ways rather mm-hmm. than in the kitchen. Um, she then needed was a single mom and and had to kind of put her energy in other places. Um, but I don't ever want to get to the point where um, I I have that kind of. I don't want to do that anymore. I want it to be something that I pursue as a lifelong uh, kind of place of creativity and joy and nurture and comfort. And so, there are times when it's mac and cheese out of the box, and and that sure. is great. So I think the permission, because uh, the permission giving and the what we really value is, is that time and caring for one another in the conversation. And that that's really primary. And then the, the food that we share is a, a means to that. It's a, it's a part of the story, but it's not the focus.
0: Yeah. Did you, do you have like a, and it's okay if you don't, but do you have like a, did you have like a moment where cooking kind of changed from this chore for you, uh this thing that has to be done to a thing that was a creative outlet or a thing that was bringing you joy? Like, do you have a a moment that you can pinpoint or even like a period of time that you can pinpoint where that changed for you?
1: I think the pandemic was, was really key for me. I mean, I think it's been an evolving journey. So I, I certainly have always, for in, in recent years, uh, part of it was finding the right, the right tools. And mm-hmm. I I'm such a creature of the internet, uh, I'm not quite a digital native, but I'm close. Um, mm. I'm 50 now, and so you know, from the time I was in college, the internet was a part of my life. And we have a shelf full of cookbooks that we do refer to from time to time. But I love the New York Times cooking app. It mm. is so easy to oh use. Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> so having the right tools, I think, actually was a was a big piece of it. And and certainly there are wonderfully improvisational things that happen in in kitchens that uh, maybe aren't as artfully equipped as we see in the movies and TV and, you know, on all of the lifestyle blogs and, and Instagrams and everything. Um, But having that ability to search and I love the, I love the resourcefulness of knowing you have a certain set of ingredients in your kitchen and being able to search for those and see what's the recipe that's going to make use of those. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever, uh, I can't remember if it what podcast it was, but there was a podcast where someone it was a food podcast. Somebody would uh, call in and they would say, "I have these five ingredients." Uh, do you remember that one? I, I, I can't. I remember do, and
0: I'm blanking on who I on who it was. It might have been like the Splendid Table or something. Oh like yes, that. yes, yeah. Yes.
1: Splendid, yep. Yeah, yeah, Splendid Table. So, um, what a fun kind of way yeah. to to think. And and you know, Derek, that. Um, I wrote a book a few years ago about improvisation, mm. improvisation as a spiritual and life practice. And the ability to take just what's available and to make something that can be sustaining and and fun and creative is really, is really delightful. Now that said, I love baking and I I love muffins are kind of my I wouldn't say my specialty because I don't do anything special with them but I love (laughs) making them because it's very like plug and chug you just you put the ingredients in baking is very it's chemistry it comes out but I like the little individual here's your serving size right (laughs) and so it it pleases me it just has a a nice kind of um a nice feel to it so so those are some highlights I think
0: I get that um then you have mentioned to me that you you have you've done a little bit of gardening that a little bit of gardening has entered into your world. How's that going?
1: Oh my gosh, I have to tell you Derek that you were one of my inspirations for that. Following your journey and I I I can't remember if it's something that was peripheral to your growing up or if it's something that was was not at all a part of that that you have as an adult really come into. Uh but I think I told myself I just don't do that. I had a few experiences <laughs> of killing plants and and I'm like, well, that's just a thing I don't do. Yeah. Um and and I really do think the pandemic has upended a lot of things for a lot of people. Yeah. And it had a real impact on my sense of place. I think it did for many of us. We're we're walk, you know, we're walking around our neighborhoods uh, in a way that we because we just need to get out of the house. I mean, all of that sort of thing. And and all part of it too. And this is going to sound really weird, probably, but uh, I have in recent years, based on because of some projects that I've been working on, gotten interested in kind of apocalyptic fiction and mm. sort of end of the world kind of how do people manage when the world is falling apart sort of narratives mm-hmm. and i was like i don't have a lot of really useful skills in that area <laughs> <laughs> you know if if you need some post apocalyptic coaching or um you know a good a good article or sermon i'm going to be your gal but um and and part of it really was was this sensibility around about in, around improvisation and just giving it a try. Mm. Like, why do I why do I need to assume that that's just not something I can do? Yeah. The people who do this and who learn are are no um, smarter or more capable than I am. They've just decided to to work their way into it. And so uh, first step was composting. That was my my first kind of foray into kind of thinking beyond just being a consumer and a cook but like thinking about how what I consume is connected to the land around me and boy we could talk extensively about the theology of of composting oh yes because I think it's so very rich so it amazing it really is and as a recovering perfectionist I I just love going out there I I named my compost bin Juno um <laughs> after one of the goddesses of of land and home um and uh and yeah, I just love going out there and turning that compost and seeing this stuff that just showed up, this this rich bl- brownish black and it's just there. It yeah. it just arrives. It's truly amazing. Um but in terms of gardening, I uh, I'm still on the uh the the waiting list for a community garden plot. I I live in a town home, so we don't have a lot of space in our own place for for doing that. So, while I wait, I decided I I'm going to make the most of this time. And so I've got a number of containers going and some failures and some successes. And it's as, as we talk in early December, I've still got, I mean, the spinach is still going and um, we've got uh, carrots that we're going to be pulling. Uh, It's been a very strange fall because it's been rainy and we've had a couple of cold days. Um, But I really find myself loving it. And I didn't think that I would. And in some ways, I feel like I'm kind of becoming the middle, stereotypical middle-aged lady who, you know, now putters <laughs> around the garden. But uh, so be it. I'm happy to be a stereotype. <laughs>
0: there are worse things. Yes, there are worse that's things. That's right.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So, my grandfather had a garden as I was growing up, and my my mom, you know, claims that she did not get my grandfather's green thumb, and we have we have arguments about that. I I argue that green thumb is not a real thing. Yes. Um, but you know, it's one of those things that it really, uh, sort of took off for me in adulthood and, um, yeah, it, it changes your life. It, it changes really your does. life. And and my God, there's so much theological work to be mined from. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and and well, a lot of like yeah. giving up of control for instance. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, and, and as you know, you know, my most recent book that talks about hope and is trying to think about how do we think about hope beyond kind of convenient and very simplistic categories. And there's a there's a bit in there that's inspired by you and thinking about how is hope, I think we think sometimes that hope is like baking or cooking where you just put the ingredients in and things come out the way you expect them to. And certainly that doesn't always happen in the kitchen, but that's what's great about baking is if the ingredients are good, and your re- recipe is sound and you follow it, you're going to come out with a more or less reliable result. And, and gardening has felt much more mysterious. I mean, for one thing, it, it, it takes place over a much longer time horizon, but also um, there's just a lot that's out of your control. And so what I told myself when I started these containers, I said, my goal is, what I'm growing right now is knowledge. I, if if I get some vegetables out of this, great. But what I'm really trying to do is learn how do I show up to this task of weeding and watering and watching and all of those things, and what do I need to learn about how this climate kind of works and all of this. So what I've been really focusing on is is the learning process and what do I need to know in order to make the most of this 10 by 20 foot plot that is going to be mine and the coming months, whenever that actually happens. But also as you have written about and talked about in your work, that it's a it's something that we show up to and bring our best to as a, an act that has its own worth and dignity in itself. And of course you want a product out of it, but um, you also have to be willing to let the process unfold and and trust that that in itself is the product. The experience is, the process is the product, perhaps, in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah,
0: yeah, because there's a lot about the process that changes you and and forces you to reflect and forces you to um, deal with different parts of yourself in some sometimes uncomfortable ways.
1: <laughs> exactly, for sure, for sure. And, and to me, that's really that's the connection with, with hope and how I'm thinking about hope these days is, is what is worth doing, even if the product or the result is not what you would have hoped, uh, or wanted it to be, yeah. there is worth in, in showing up yeah, and, and, and doing your best. So, yeah.
0: Well, let's segue into talking about the book because I I actually have an ulterior motive uh, that I did not tell you about. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So when, uh, as you know, Anna and I have been working on this book, uh, The Just Kitchen, and one of the things that we were doing when we were writing the book was we were ending each chapter with um, a quote from the podcast of our our guest, telling us what gives them hope as we ask at the end of every ep- of every episode. And our editor pushed back kind of hard against it because not all of the quotes directly connected to things that were happening in the kitchen, people get hope from all sorts of places. Um, but one of the questions that we ended up uh, wrestling with uh, because of our editor is, how does hope connect to the idea of justice Hmm. and how does hope connect to these ideas of the world that we want to see so I'm going to put that I'm going to put a pin in that question just leave it there let it it marinate for you for a second um but I want to start with what was sort of the origin of the book um and and it's hope a user's manual. And so I I, I both love the title and I love sort of the format. So could you talk to us a little bit about what were the origins of the book and why you chose the format you did?
1: Hmm. I, the book really was born out of an experience I had with a coaching client, a a pastor who had been working really long and, and well in a tiny little church in the Bible belt. And When he got there, he had all this wonderful energy and enthusiasm, and he was going to turn things around and redevelop this, this band of scrappy kind of social justice oriented folks. And over the years, he just saw huge evangelical churches just flourish all around him. And he was so tired. And, and I remember it, I don't know how we got to talking about that quote from mother Teresa that says we're, we're called not to be successful, but to be faithful. And, and, and I d- wouldn't have said that to him. It just kind of came up organically. Cause that feels a little um, sort of uh, patronizing to say, well, it's not about success. Um, I wouldn't have done that. It just kind of came up, but, but he said, you know, I think there's an unspoken piece to that, that we, we don't acknowledge that we tell each other is that if we are faithful, then we will be successful. And that, that's just not true that, that, I mean, I'm, I, he, you know, and I think many of us can relate to that, like this kind of, if we do it right, you know, we know that life's mysterious and so there's a lot outside of our control, but if we, if we kind of do it right, we still think we can kind of make that deal with the universe <laughs> mm-hmm. and it'll happen the way we, we hope it will. And, and that's just not the case. So um, that has, that stuck with me over many years the, the kind of final straw where I thought I really need to put some words to this was, uh, was again, the pandemic um, really, and thinking about the, the chaos of the last several years, especially in the United States, but certainly there are authoritarian movements going around the world. and, And how do we think about that to say nothing of climate change and, you know, having having teenagers and having conversations with them about what hope even means. And they think about hope very differently. Mm. Uh, You know, uh, talk to young people, and this is by no means universal, but there's sort of a, you know, I don't really, I don't really relate to the idea of having hope. Mm. And yet these are, you know, the, the young people I know who say this are also very purposeful and very caring about the world. And so if not hope, then what? Or are we thinking about hope all wrong? If it's essential in order to kind of get from point A to point B, so it was kind of an attempt to really interrogate some of those things. And also, as readers of the book will know, we were going through a pretty significant um, experience with our oldest, uh, Caroline, and a pretty significant depression that really impacted high school uh, in a in a pretty profound way. Uh, The kid's doing well at this point, sophomore in college. And, and, and yet I even put that coda on there with some hesitation because, you know, these things come in cycles. And, and so I don't, I don't want to put that into a little patent narrative of like, we went through the dark forest and now we're all better (laughs) because I think that's the problem with how we usually talk about hope, right? Mm -hmm. Just hang on and things are going to get better. Well, sometimes things don't get better. And how do we have hope then? Or do we even need hope? And so that's where the book kind of came from. and and to be honest, so there are six sections to the book, and there's sort of what hope is not. So I want to deconstruct a bunch of stuff that I think our, our culture and, and especially woven throughout the book, I hope, I hope enough is what I see as an important critique of a very white, middle, upper middle class kind of view of hope, which is, it's essential, it's really important. And it's also very product oriented, like, you know, and that works well for people for whom the world is set up to work for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, voices on the margins have other ways of thinking about hope. And I didn't want to speak for them, but allow them to speak through, through the book. But anyway, a lot of deconstruction in the first section. And then the, the subsequent sections are kind of what hope is and thinking about hope as an embodied phenomenon, thinking about it as a narrative and goes on from there. But what is, I think, different from the way I've done other books that I've written is the reflections are very short. So each of those six sections has, um, you know, between seven and 10 mini reflections that are like no more than a thousand words long. And I have to be completely honest and say that I wrote it that way because that is all I was capable of writing hmm. the idea of having a sustained argument a a, a sustained kind of series of assertions that I was making was just more than I could do in the middle of a pandemic and having just kind of walked with Caroline in this difficult position. And I kind of banked on the fact that probably in our chaotic world, there are going to be people who, who will benefit and will, will appreciate just little nuggets, right. That hopefully are not simplistic, but they're short enough that you can kind of grab one and go on with your day. So that is the, that is the format of the book. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about hope, but having a, a way for people to kind of dip in and, and get a little, a little something to think about has been, was how it came out.
0: Yeah. And, and I've, I really appreciate it as I read it. Um, because you, 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 one, I love your writing and I think um, you do a great job of, of, one, your prose is, is very well written, but you also weave in these beautiful images from from whether they're literary uh, images, whether they're film images, um, whether they're um, theological images um, and and you have kind of woven them into these really easily digestible um, chapters that I think do reframe what hope means for us, um, because hope is um, kind of an abstract right and and like there's uh i think one of the things that you know early in the book you talk about the fact that hope is not optimism and i think that so often is where people get stuck is that what what they're you know i i don't know that i consider myself a very optimistic person but i would say that i'm a very hopeful person and I think you helped put language to that, um, and, I, and I think that is connected to, um, and I and I and I appreciate your naming this. I think that is connected to a very white middle class post World War II um, idea of things are going to work out for us. Um, and and so I'm I am interested in, in hearing, just, uh, if you wouldn't mind drilling down a little bit on uh, a couple examples of of how those ideas of hope are, um rejected or subverted when you're talking to people of color, when you're talking of other marginalized groups um how how hope doesn't look like that idea that is so kind of uh baked into the dominant culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I remember when one little tidbit, and then I'll talk about a larger theme that I hope really came through in the book. Um, when uh, when Jacob Blake was shot in Kenosha, I remember Austin Channing Brown tweeting, "You know, at times like this, I'm I'm asked, do you feel do you ever feel hopeful? Do you feel hopeful?" And and she said, "White white folk usually mean are you optimistic?" And we can quibble over, you know, optimistic and hope, and and I think sometimes we use them interchangeably. And I, I, like you, I feel like they are two different things. But but what she said that was really the heart of it is is, um, and this was her; these are her words. You know, she said, "For Black folk, we see hope in legacy and and duty. You know, what what are we responsible uh, to do and to put into the world? And and this this is the part I'm I'm paraphrasing, but." It's not about, uh, you know, for them for for them, as she says, it's it's there's there's too much to mourn um, to, to sort of frame it in terms of hope for a specific outcome. Um, it's really about what are we called to do and, and be right now. And to me, that is such a powerful message for uh, people in the midst of on the verge of whatever is coming with climate change and whatever is already here. Um, and, and another voice, and this didn't make it into the book, I promise I'm going to get to the part that's in the book, but I remember hearing, uh, Jane Goodall, um, sort of wonderful, you know, uh, biologist and, and kind of, uh, you know, studier of nature and, and, um, uh, zoology, especially around chimpanzees. She was talking to Ayanna Johnson, who is a woman of color who does a lot around climate and they had this argument about hope and Jane Goodall, who's also from a different generation than Ayana, who's a younger woman is like, how could you not feel hope? Like we'd be lost without hope. Mm. And Ayana's is like, I do not need hope. I need to think about what is the right moral thing to do with this climate crisis mm. that is coming. And that's what guides me, not is it all going to work out? Okay. You know, we need to have hope that it can get better. It may not get better. Mm. And and i i found that really compelling and and empowering in a way and and putting it into my own personal kind of uh you know family situation certainly i i hope <laughs> um i i have uh and i even trust on some level that that as bad as things are with my kids mental health it will not always be that way that, mm-hmm. that we can get out of it but in some ways that became a burden that expectation and hope mm. that things will get better because right now what I need to do is just be present mm-hmm. and not impose a narrative on my kid that that it will be okay right now it's not okay right now it's terrible and mm. how to accompany someone in that so the the piece that really uh I, I quote him many times in the book um is the Cuban ethicist Miguel de la Torre who teaches at ILIF um, school of theology and i heard him speak right before the pandemic about his book which is called embracing hopelessness mm. and he really critiques the way we talk about hope as a kind of um a primarily white dominant kind of phenomenon where again you input these ingredients and and things turn out the way well the world is set up for things to turn out that way for people in that in that kind of um cohort. So for him, he really sees a lot of uh, motivation, value in the idea of, of letting go of hope. And instead, when our circumstances are desperate and dire enough, that's when we are moved to action. Mm. And And hope can be pacifying for people, especially mm. the way the church has often talked about hope, which is in the sweet by and by, You'll be okay, right? You're yeah. going to go to heaven, yeah. so don't worry about your your dire circumstances and the way that I'm oppressing you, <laughs> you know, in that sort of missionary kind of uh, uh, project. So, um, so that has been really powerful and I think liberating in in a lot of really important ways for me personally, and I hope for others who will read it.
0: Yeah, I I think so, um, and I also want to circle back to this idea of of the generational differences. Um, my friend Talitha was on the show. Uh, uh, it'll be a couple months ago at this point, um, talking about her book on climate change and and working with young people around climate change. And she echoed a lot of what you just said. It, this idea that hope for younger generations is not a place where they live. Like hope isn't a isn't a thing that they're even aspiring for. Um, what you know i i i'm now you know i think i'm now in the generation where i have to like listen to the kids like I, i'm now starting to feel kind of old but same <laughs> same <laughs> but like what what can folks and you know uh uh i'm i'm oregon trail generation is what they say but uh yes. gen, gen, gen x oregon trail folks like us like um how, what can we learn from, from our kids? You know, our, your kids and my kids aren't that different in age. Um, and, and the ways that they're approaching and showing up to this idea of hope.
1: I want to say as an aside, and you can edit this out if you feel like it's self-serving, but I loved that conversation so much, uh, that you all had about that. And in, in fact, recommended Talitha's book to some of the folks at our congregation, mm-hmm. because we do, it's it's very complicated, because we also have this really profound mental health crisis among Gen Z and and younger millennials, and perhaps even even older than that. And I think what folks who are older and sincerely want to help think we need to do is help give young people a sense of hope, like that's that's the antidepressant <laughs> that is needed, right? Mm-hmm. And and I just really question that. And I it's it's, it's like you're you know I think that's what uh, Talitha's work is also kind of asking us to to think more expansively that folks who are going to be living in this whatever is coming in the decades to come are not simply the hapless victims that are going to reap what we have sown—they also have wisdom right now that that we can bring to bear. And this is a weird reference when talking about generations, because this book was written by someone who I think is around our age, Derek, or maybe a little older. But I am just now finishing uh, Timothy Beal's book, which is called "When Time Is Short." I believe that's the the title finding our way in the Anthropocene Mm. and his contention, he's a professor of religion at Case Western. And, and, and he, he, this came out of conversations with his students and, and with his own kids. Um, Our days are numbered. I mean, and, and, and he's not saying, you know, in, in our lifetimes or but but, you know, this human project could come to an end. Mm -hmm. Maybe it won't. Uh, but how do we live and how do we find wisdom for living right now if that if that is the case rather than, oh, that won't happen, we'll we'll figure it. Out. Well There's some really lovely ways to think about what it means to be with one another. And he uses the analogy of kind of palliative care and mm. um, thinking about, which is distinct from hospice care, uh palliative care is about kind of harm reduction and and it's an embodied kind of experience and it is about um bearing witness and being with one another you know anyway it's really a fascinating read and just kind of i mean it's not that he's not talking about hope but he almost just kind of puts it over on the shelf and says hope or no hope here are some ways of thinking about where we are right now
0: mm. That's, I mean, I love um, when I was doing work with, uh, and I still am, doing work with folks who are living with HIV, um, harm reduction was just such an important part of the conversation. And I think it needs to become a part of our conversations on so many of the big issues that are facing us. Is like, what can we do that is going to diminish the amount of suffering for the world. Um, not going to fix everything, not going to solve everything, but we can make things hurt less. Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and I just think that is, that is a really important stance. I think, especially for people of faith for us to have that, that posture that we can do less harm in the world.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that too, I mean, you know, bringing in the, the metaphor and the the kind of symbolism of of growth. I mean, it's such a close in thing, which is not to say that there aren't policies that need to be enacted that, that will help mitigate harm and and diminish the the harm that is to come, but it also feels very scalable, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, like like you're you're tending your own kind of place where you are and there are ways to to be about that harm reduction right where you are. It doesn't yeah. let any of us off the hook, but nor does it say we're going to solve this if we all just start recycling more or right. eating a, a you know a plant plant-based diet. I mean good things to do, right? But um but it also is something that we all have agency in. Yeah.
0: And so we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but how do we how do we connect the dots between Um, hope or whether or not we connect the dots between hope and and our practical actionable works for justice actually wanting to see the uh, a a better world um what what is that what is that connection then and 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 is that connection even helpful as we move forward
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah
1: one of the things that I really wanted to critique in the book is the idea that hope is a cognitive phenomenon, that it's a a, a set of beliefs or a thing that we intellectually assent to. And one of the hardest sections to write in some ways is the, the third section where I talk about, the, it's titled hope lives in the body mm. and And my idea around there in that section is just to really help myself always writing primarily to myself, but also to others to say, this is, this is something we enact, but we don't enact in our, we enact in the bodies that we have and in the lives, the imperfect lives that we have. And, and so, um, those are bodies that have experienced trauma or that, don't run like machines that need rest. You know, I mean, I sometimes, and I think this is a kind of function I've heard it described as a, a characteristic of, of white supremacy culture, the idea that, um, that everything is urgent and, and therefore, um, you know, we, we don't really put down kind of roots or purposeful action in any kind of particular place. Cause it's all an emergency and it, gosh it, it really all is but that doesn't mean that we are machines that can just run without uh without ceasing and so part i have to believe or i choose to believe that enacting hope that is connected to justice happens even amidst bodies that are not able to go 24/7 we need rest too and i i trust that that is part of the liberative work that we do, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I, I quote Valerie Kaur, who is a, an activist um, in the book, who says, "The way we make change is as important as the change we make." Mm-hmm. So the how that we we treat one another and and that we uh, we pursue right where we are, and if we are burning ourselves out and or 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 othering one another, you know. Um, so the justice is kind of. Baked in all the way down. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as a, as a broader kind of answer to your question um, I think part of the ways, one of the ways that hope gets very domesticated is it is a very personal hope. It's a very like, mm-hmm. it's all going to be okay for me and mine. And, and that to me is not, that is not true hope. Okay. I talked to uh, a friend recently for my podcast that'll um, be coming out in the coming months. and, and he talked about malformed hope mm. and, and the idea that we just don't, uh, we it, it functions on a very superficial or surface level. And, and I think the the hope that is connected to justice as, you know, I mean, if it's not for us church folk, if it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news. So hope for me and not for thee is <laughs> not is not not going to get us there at all. So
0: yeah, yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, and I also appreciated your your mentioning of the nap ministry and and which is which is such a a great and kind of counterintuitive um, understanding of of how rest is this um, anti white supremacist thing that we do when when we're constantly told to produce. And interestingly, um uh so I, I've been auditing this class on Wendell Berry. And so I've been reading tons of Wendell berry and so I'm seeing Wendell Berry everywhere.
1: <laughs> Love it.
0: But I can think of
1: worse things. Absolutely than <laughs> seeing Wendellberry everywhere.
0: Absolutely. But but it actually, you know, it connects to you know his ideas that um you know, part of what's wrong with the culture is that it's turning us into machines. Part of what's wrong with the culture is that it's turning us into um, uh, these things that are primarily driven by profit and production and productivity. And um, part of hope, I think for me, and I I think part of what what I both hear you saying now and read in the book is that hope has to, return us back to our humanity like hope has to restore our humanity it Mm -hmm. has to celebrate our humanity Mm -hmm. like hope can't just be external to the world getting better but like if we're broken in the midst of that we haven't actually fixed the world so I think that's something that I I really appreciate as a part of um a part of you know uh, the message in of, of your book, mm-hmm. um, and I guess in in that same vein um, of seeing Wendell Berry everywhere, one of the things that I feel like your book forces us to reckon with is there's not quick fixes. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're not we're not you know hope actually isn't worthwhile if the things that I'm hoping for can be done in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I'm, I'm really interested in hearing, you know, how do, how do we as people of faith in this culture that is so looking for quick fixes, easy answers, escape routes, um, just, just a button to push, like, how do we instill in people this idea of a slow mustard seed you know Mm, there it is uh grain of yeast kind of yes
1: yes right well and and as you're talking i i'm just realizing again how the timing of this book is is interesting because we're kind of in late stage pandemic whatever it is i mean as as you and i talk we're in a i heard it called a triple demic because we've got flu, RSV, and and COVID still around, you know, and and the idea of of any kind of even new normal feels still very elusive. But mm-hmm. it is my attempt to kind of shout into the void as as the forces of inertia want to get us back into what you're describing of the kind of cycle of endless growth, which is not sustainable on any level. It's not sustainable for our human souls it's not sustainable for the planet certainly not sustainable economically it's not i mean it you know incredible inequality is is a, a product of all of this um but as you were talking i really was thinking about octavia butler um mm. and and i don't i was in the midst of reading um parable of the sower as i was writing the book and and i had to take it in such small doses that i don't think i ended up <laughs> quoting her anywhere um but the I'm so struck in that story um, that Lauren, who is in the most dire kind of danger and abject terror in this world that you know has um swirled into chaos all around her. And yet she holds on to this hope of the destiny of humanity is to live among the stars. Mm-hmm. And what on some level what a ridiculous like i mean i mean how does she get there right how does this character i mean who who is you know having to be armed and worried about being assaulted on the road and and meets up with people along the way i mean all of this incredible and it's it's weird to call it a hopeful story but i i i, I think it absolutely is and and not because of that but i think it functions that that the idea of living among the stars but for her it functions as a um a sort of a approximate a purpose or a or something or maybe a far off purpose that that to to work towards and for her that functions maybe as hope i don't know mm-hmm. um a possibility right mm-hmm. um and and i wonder and maybe this is i'm not sure if this is an answer to your question but it's what i i think of when i, when I think about this is we are called, I mean, I, I find such, and I'll call it hope. I find such hope in watching people who um, in in the most difficult circumstances still make a decision toward grace and toward uh, justice and toward caring for one another and harm reduction if that's all that's available. And And maybe that's enough. Um, but I just, I'm so intrigued by, by Butler's, um, fleshing out of this character of Lauren, who also has this, this aspiration or this, this yearning, um, to leave this earth and to live elsewhere, you know, and, and how do we, and maybe that's a conversation for faith people too, is like, how does our eschatology, how does our sense that this is all going somewhere, not provide an escape, but, stir our hearts enough that we are caring about the here and now
0: yeah 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 Yeah. octavia butler gave us a lot to chew on with
1: (laughs) parable the talents yes
0: uh it's they're 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 hard books but they are ultimately hopeful
1: Mm -hmm. um
0: they are ultimately about um what we're capable of what we're capable of building and what we're capable of building in community which i think is really what's beautiful about about those and and i think for me i think one of the other things that i that i take away from this conversation is that um hope is rarely individualistic hope is so often communal yeah. Um, and hope that's individualistic isn't real hope um mm-hmm. well said so so having having written this book having sat with this topic now for for the amount of time that you have um you've talked a, you've you've hinted just a little bit but what is what is right now giving you hope what is um giving you sort of a, that resilient uh hope that that allows you to keep chugging along and doing the work that you're doing.
1: I'm going to say this knowing that it could be like one of those things where you like hear, you learn a new word and then you start to see it everywhere. And, (laughs) and it could be, you know, this could be my own confirmation bias, but one of the things I think about hope is that uh, I, I, quote Kwame Anthony Appiah who's a philosopher and he talks about um useful fictions um and just what what is it helpful to believe about the world in order to be who i want to be i mean that's that's what i understand in that and and so i'm going to say this uh even if it's a useful fiction for myself but it really feels like more and more people are having the kind of conversations that you and i are having and i don't mean me in particular, I mean, I'm just one little piece of, as you say, that this is a communal thing, but, um, you know, podcasts like yours and places where where we are really interrogating, questioning, rejecting the ways that the world uh, kind of churns on dysfunctionally and and says, that's no, no more. And, and certainly that's nothing new. Um, I, I think we're we're joining a, um I, I quote Fred Hampton in the book of the Black Panther Party who says you can you can uh, kill the revolutionary but not the revolution, right? I mean, I this is this the beat has gone on for a long time. But maybe it's just that I'm tapped into it in a way that I I haven't been. Uh, but I think there's I think there's a real, Robust conversation happening and and maybe we will always be a little bit of a minority report. But to me, that is enough to give me hope, because being able to have conversations about the things that matter, and and to make those real in our own lives and to hold one another accountable. um, That's where it's at. And, and maybe I mean, as Miguel de la Torre says, you know, the powers that be are always 10 steps ahead of us. And maybe that is true, Um, but there is power in, in standing up and saying, no, I see what's going on and I, I, I can't, I can't be a part of it. And, you know, that's complicated. We're all in the world and, and of it and, (laughs) you know, all of those Mm -hmm. things, but I, I, that conversation gives me a lot of hope.
0: Yeah. Likewise, and I'm so grateful that you have given us, uh, and again, uh, the the format of this makes it so user friendly, uh, makes it so accessible, so, such a like, I can read this, put it down, reflect on it, or I can keep going and connect the dots. And so just really grateful for you and for this book and. Um, how can people connect with you because i know that you have you have sort of um disappeared from social media uh so what are what are some ways that people can connect with you and the work that you're doing
1: thanks yeah that's been an interesting experiment and there are aspects of it i miss but uh yeah it's it's been an interesting uh process um i am uh, easily available and reachable online at my website Marianne dot or dot me net <laughs> Wow, we'll fact yeah. check
0: that. <laughs> yeah,
1: fact check it for me. But you know, the part of the the benefit of having a an incredibly long, uh, complicated name is if you Google we'll, me, we'll, you'll, we'll find you'll you'll you. get to me. But I also. Uh, one of the things I am really committed to is my weekly newsletter that I've been doing for many, many, many years. It's called The Blue Room and is now hosted at Substack. But if you go to my website, you'll be able to get access to it. And that's uh, such a rich experience for me. I love hearing from people in response to it. And uh, it's a real spiritual discipline of mine to to write that each week. And it's my own little what's inspiring me, what's kicking my butt what's uh you know what's giving me mana for the journey and and so those those are some places to find me
0: yeah and I personally enjoy reading those every week and I'm grateful again for your voice um and I I I do want to say that um I uh definitely want to recommend this book but I would also uh, highly recommend your other two books as well Um, And I've just appreciated so much how you have, um, you know, first with Sabbath and Suburbs, I feel like you have, and going on to God and Improv and this book, I feel like you have tackled these really hard things, and you've tackled um, a lot of status quo. Um, And I feel like your, your writing is kind of in a place that is kind of always asking us to question status quo. And I just very much appreciate that about you and about your writing. And so grateful for your time today and grateful for your voice.
1: Derek, thank you so much. It has been such a joy as it always is to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Diemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.